Welcome to another episode of the Carnal Extremities podcast, a horror podcast that focuses on extreme movies and extreme music and how they correlate or don't correlate, you know, we just kind of wing things here. There's never any strict regimen. I am your one of your hosts, as always, Reina Cervantes, and with me is... I'm your host, Vanna. Yes. Yes. Not my co-host, my host. This is E... Equal equal measures ours. I think we need to clear that up for people who are not quite sure, you know? Yeah, we're we're all on an equal playing field here. A hundred percent. Uh this week we are diving into a particularly special movie, I would say. We're gonna kinda go back in time a little bit, even further than two thousand three. Um it probably might be one of the oldest movies we ever cover on this pod, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so far, so far what we have in the in the works, this is the the oldest, but um but hopefully we'll we'll venture further down extreme history, but we'll see. Mhm. A hundred percent. And in a very special Carno Extremities first, we're not alone this week at all uh we actually have two wonderful guests joining us this week uh they are known for hosting the hit factory podcast please welcome to the show aaron and carly reina vanna hello and thank you for inviting us on we are so very excited to be here today thrilled 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 thrilled. and this is going to be one of the oldest ones you all ever do on the show really you're not going to go back to like cannibal holocaust era or anything i'm I'm like you're giving away our slate (laughs) i'm kidding (laughs) i'm like no we never mind edit that part out delete it we're kidding we're kidding we we can leave that (laughs) yeah we will we will eventually right now we've been sticking with like early 2000s um like the torture porn era and things like that so yeah we've been we've been within a specific uh beautiful little time capsule so i think you know, as we go through future seasons of the show, we'll probably, you know, pick and choose different time capsules. So yeah, that we'll definitely we'll definitely be going back to that at some point. Yeah. Even though it's not at horror, I think one day I would like to cover Funeral Parade of Roses. That's a pretty extreme film. Um but um for our listeners that don't know, do you guys want to give us the elevator pitch on what Hit Factory is? Oh, you're great in an elevator. You go. <laughs> I'm I'm good at an you're, elevator. You're great in an elevator. Carly says I love nothing more than a captive audience, and there's not anything more captive than being stuck in an elevator with me, 100%. I suppose. Uh, so Hit Factory Podcast uh, is a podcast that covers the films of the 1990s. Uh, we talk a great deal about their politics, the politics of the era, uh, the sort of sociopolitical economy of, of that time period, culture at large, pop cultural artifacts, uh, and kind of discuss why those films are significant and what they can kind of tell us about art uh, of the period and also art today and what the modern cinematic landscape feels like and why. Wow. You, you have that, that rehearsed. Someone who just finished their uh, master's in sociology. I love that. <laughs> oh, my god! That's everything I do. That's my entire reason for loving the horror genre. 
and my entire thesis and everything. So, um, Vanna, so that's why that's on. why I do the podcast. But I majored in sociology, and uh, that's like my way in for all of the movies that we talk about. So I'm right there with you. Wow, this was meant to be. That's <laughs> that is. Uh, I love that. This is going to be a good conversation. Then this is uh, one of those films that's prime for that. Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. I have to ask though, because usually when people do like podcasts that focus on like ninety centric movies, they focus on like a more nostalgia angle of everything. What made you guys want to tackle it from a completely unique angle and how it applies to today? Great question, Raina. Excellent question, <laughs> Raina. In fact, uh, we talk at length uh, about that when discussing the podcast and on the show uh, as well. I think the the answer is inherent actually in your question, which is uh, so many people, I think, focus on films from yesteryear and from previous decades with sort of a, a you know, kind of rosy colored and sort of sepia toned, nostalgic kind of viewpoint vantage point on them this sort of uh i don't know kind of flattening of what that thing is and why it's meaningful and we're more interested in kind of breaking that down and asking the question of like is this thing still significant for other reasons and and what does this thing actually tell us more broadly about what was happening in america mostly but in the world in general in in that time period it's just nostalgia is fun to a certain extent and and we're certainly like not immune to it i think we pick movies all the time that we loved as kids and you know things that will say like you know rips or has the juice etc <laughs> uh but, but but we like to go a little bit deeper than that too and actually kind of ponder like why why does this thing look and feel the way it does and also like why do films that we have that kind of sense of nostalgia for look and feel the way they do from a sort of like materialist perspective as well like why hollywood and and why filmmaking in general felt different and then looks different today i'll add on to that briefly and just say that i think there's also a sort of reflexive allergy to like the escapism that is present in a lot of nostalgic consumption right now um that like we are are trying to i won't say like fight against but like at least examine with a more critical posture um, because there is so much, uh, there's so much escapism in kind of like the cultural artifacts of days that feel safer and like um, more stable from our past uh, coming into our present and that being like sold back to us. And like, I think there's something interesting there, but we also want to like, you know, sort of fight the the um, the ease with which we can fall into that nostalgia trap. Um, and I think that, you know, we certainly are guilty of like, like we just talked about Twister and I was like, oh, this movie fucking owns. And like, yeah. you know, that's all I said for a couple minutes. But then, <laughs> but then we but check then ourselves. We, but then we check ourselves and we like get into it. Yeah. And just and one more thing to jump off of that too. I think like one of the things that we often uncover when we, go back to films from the decade that do have those kind of like coziest feelings attached to them. Uh, we often find that those betray like many of the most sort of 
psychotic ideologies of like neoliberal capitalism specifically at the end of history like during this very refined like clintonite neoliberal period of our existence um so it's always fun because it's like oh yeah this was like warm and fuzzy and felt good and also oh this is totally about how like america thinks that it's not just a world power but like a galactic power and needs to police the stars as well that's men in black uh but um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but we like to do that kind of thing on the show often and and it usually yields a a fun sort of uh i don't know just reflection on things that often at the time didn't feel like maybe they had those textures to them wow you guys are really setting the bar for our guests going forward <laughs> <laughs> do we sound like we know what we're talking about that's the goal that's all we ever tried to do. i was like listen i'm pretty sure you two had this rehearsed before we even hit record no i'm kidding <laughs> no i love that um like non-nostalgic approach to viewing something that we find inherently nostalgic because like you said we do put sepia colored glasses over our eyes for this particular era and it's just very like What's the word I'm looking for? It's very invigorating to get another perspective on that that isn't just nostalgia based. I love that. That's that is the goal. Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Plus, like you know, but at at the end of the day, it's it's still talking about movies, and we all love movies. I'm assuming. We all love movies. Yeah. <laughs> There's also just like a lot of good movies from that era, oh, frankly. Yeah. You know, like like the movies movies more broadly. I feel like we're just a little bit better than than some of what we get today and and I don't say that again from like a nostalgic angle like there's a materialist reason for for that and why there was better stuff coming out more frequently during yeah, that time more period. of it okay so um before we dive into the movie that we're talking about I need to know your guys's favorite horror movie from the 90s <gasps> oh my god I know Carly's right off the top. Yeah, you just answered it for me. I was like, what's my answer? And then you were like, "Eh." Well, it's between that and... Yeah. Yeah. So I am like, I will just say, I'm not a person that is naturally drawn to horror, but I have horror horror films that, you know, I really adore. Um, And uh, funnily enough, two of my favorite movies ever, like ever made... Um, happened to be horror films that I only came to because of the podcast. And one mm-hmm. of those is Ravenous and the other is um, The Exorcist 3. Uh, both mm-hmm. of which I just think are like fucking radical and like really cool and uh, made me think about like the experience of watching movies differently and um yeah, Ravenous, uh, the soundtrack with Damon Al- Damon Albarn and who did he partner with? Michael Nyman. Michael Nyman. Mm-hmm. Um, the soundtrack to that movie is like incredible and um, just a, a really fantastic film that I think says a lot about uh, colonialism in America. Um, and The Exorcist Three is like. I don't know. I was not expecting to love that movie as much as I did, but we talked about it with a dear friend of ours, Bill Ryan, who adores that film. Um, and he totally like opened it up for me. And, um, and it is now one of my favorite movies. So that's my answer. Wonderful. Aaron. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I have a 
two-pronged answer as well because I horror definitely is more kind of my bag. I, I definitely enjoyed a lot of stuff that was kind of more in the sci-fi horror creature feature kind mm-hmm. of vein when I was a kid. Uh, stuff like Event Horizon, Tremors, The Faculty, all that kind of stuff was just like a total blast for me when I was, you know, like... Like my dad sat me down and showed me Alien when I was six and probably shouldn't have. And that just sent me on a path for a long time that just was that kind of stuff in that vein looking for it. Um, But it was probably after several years down the line as a kind of like budding cinephile and, and like after college a little bit when I started getting really into John Carpenter. And I think that In the Mouth of Madness might be my all time like favorite 90s horror film okay i respect Mm -hmm. every answer said so far because yeah those are those are all like bangers like i seriously still think about exorcist 3 and the greatest jump scare of all time in it yes (laughs) unbelievable it's and you know it's coming and it's still fucking rules um ravenous is great i remember one time i had conversation with uh april wolf one time about uh we my old podcast we did like a theme of like a what is it a manifest destiny and that was one of the Mm. films on the docket and we talked at length about that and it was wonderful man in the mouth of man is super underrated like especially for carpenter good god movie's horrifying Mm -hmm. um vanna i want to know your favorite 90s movie like horror movie oh my gosh that spotlight time that's a big question i'm not really good with favorites i i have a hard time picking favorites um i i think it would be wrong of me to not mention scream though (laughs) um as easy of an answer low-hanging fruit that is um i don't know that's one of the first movies i ever remember watching in my entire lifetime um came out the year i was born so um (laughs) uh that kind of has a lot to do with it that was the vhs that everyone passed around uh when we were kids um other than scream i don't i don't know i i am a very big found footage fan and i have a huge love for blair witch project Mm -hmm. yeah i did just uh listen to y'all's episode about that that's that was that was very fun. Um, I do also still have that VHS on my shelf as well. <laughs> we love that movie. Yeah, it's actually kind of a dereliction of duty that we didn't mention that one between either one of us. I know that one should be up there too. Blair Witch is still the best found footage horror film and like one of the yeah best horror films like ever made. Yeah, and people that are like, it's not scary. I'm like, you don't have a beating heart in your body because yeah. it's just, terrifying just don't get it yeah I, I just got a fucking Blair Witch tattoo on my leg like a <gasps> month ago oh, hell yeah <laughs> did you get one of the stick things I did I got it oh on my, my upper god leg after so fucking cool I i'll love drop that. it in the group chat but i got it after a night of drinking with friends and then woke up the next day and i was like hey this looks pretty good actually <laughs> Yeah, you're like, yeah, uh, that's that, gonna that was a sick move somewhere. on my part. <laughs> 100%. Um, I will tell on myself and say my two favorite 90s movies. Um, I'm saying telling on myself because one of them is considered not great, but I think it is. Um, Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. Mm. Um, 
I just love how they took uh, the lore of like a slasher movie and connected it to ancient druids and, <laughs> and uh, somehow fit Paul Rudd in there as well. It, oh my yes. gosh. You know, it's, that one actually is the very first Halloween movie I ever saw. Oh my. I, I distinctly remember <laughs> it. I hid in the kitchen at my aunt's house while mm-hmm. my cousin and her friend were watching parts of it. But I very vividly remember the scene with the guy in the tree and the little girl being oh, like, it's raining. Raining red. Yep. Oh, <laughs> I I love that movie in particular in the Halloween franchise. It's weird. It's like me and Vanna have argued about this before about some of my Halloween takes, like saying like Halloween ends is one of the best of the franchise and whatnot. But um, wait, that's a conversation for another day. Um, <laughs> I I like what Halloween the Curse of Michael Myers does because it's like one of the very first Halloween movies to actually capture the feel of autumn. Like you yes. watch every frame in that movie and you are a hundred percent in this movie is set during fall. It's during Halloween time. It's a very harvesty feeling movie. And I don't think any other Halloween entries really capture that feel as well as that movie. Yeah, well, because they were filmed in a place where autumn doesn't exist. So, <laughs> uh, as Southern California uh, residents, I, you know, we know that we know. those leaves were not there. <laughs> we know, we know that's Pasadena. Like we can tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then my second favorite '90s horror movie is, since everybody was giving two pronged answers, uh, my second favorite is The Craft. Oh yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, love the craft. Fuck yes. It is the ultimate teenage girl movie, ultimate goth movie, ultimate witchcraft movie for in my opinion like it's just it's just one of those like rare films that hits every single note for me and it's like ding 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 and just keeps like hitting them and you know, I rewatched it recently on the brand new 4K, and I think it holds up exceptionally well to today's standards, even with like the weird, like problematic ending of like girls turning against girls and whatnot. I I still think it's it's a very well done film. Yeah, completely. yeah, I love the like the sh- the transition when um like she does the like glamour over her hair like when she's um like when nancy does it you know mm-hmm. it like switches actresses like it's so seamless <laughs> like for for 1996 i don't know it's it it, it holds up i, I love yeah it. the effects are pretty great and anything with Faruja is a hundred percent what a queen a, a win yep yep Return to Oz, absolute fantastic. Well, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I love Return to Oz. Return to Oz. Oh, that movie is frightening. Witch. Yeah, the littlest witch. The littlest witch. Or something like no. No, I think the little so. princess, the worst witch, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. And then what? Of course, her classic. You can't forget the Water Boy. Come oh, on, yeah. she's <laughs> smoking hot. She's so in that hot movie. in the Water Boy. I know, right? That is the first movie I think to fully take advantage of like how attractive she is. As yes, an, as completely. an actress, completely. Mm-hmm. She's in crop tops the entire time. She's like never wearing a bra. It's so good wonderful wonderful well i'm glad we did this little round table of like favorite 90s horror movies and i'm glad every answer was different i'm glad i threw out my answer for scream 2 in lieu of something else <laughs> yeah i think it just highlights that there are just too many good horror movies from the 90s like it, a banger decade 
I, I've been thinking a lot about that lately, especially because everyone was like, oh, the 90s is like where horror kind of died and like slasher movies died. And I was like, listen, that era gave you scream. The fuck do you mean slashers died in it in that era? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's a shitty take. <laughs> it is. It is a shitty take. And, and one I a thousand percent don't agree with. But the movie we're covering today is from the late 90s, 1997 to be intact. Um, just before I say what it is, can I get just like round the room, like gut reactions first and foremost, and then I'll introduce it. <laughs> go ahead. No, Carly should go first. <laughs> yeah, Carly, go first. <laughs> okay viscerally just like on a purely like i'm not modulating for you like i fucking hated it oh okay (laughs) but i but i don't actually but like my my response to this film was a a bodily one a visceral response a revulsion that i could not like i could not contain but i think that that doesn't mean that the movie is not good um i actually think this movie is very good but you asked, you asked for uh, just uh, a knee jerk response. That's my, that was my first take. Okay. Okay. Aaron. Uh, well, full disclosure, I've seen this movie before, but it's been like 15 plus years. So I had forgotten a, quite a bit of it. It definitely hit me on a more visceral scale this time. Um, it definitely, I think, lingers with you and and disturbs and disrupts. Uh, and it was really fun watching alongside Carly, who, one, doesn't really do, like, extremity horror stuff very often and also was being made, being made very upset by the movie. Uh, so, like, every five minutes, it was just, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. And I and I, just, like, I get up. And I was like stomping around and like slamming, like slamming cabinet doors. Like and, and while I was being like supportive and being like, I, I know it's it's tough. There was also a part of me that like uh was quietly delighting in that because like that's kind of what you want from showing someone a movie like this, where it's like, yeah, I kinda kinda want them to have like a very uh em- emotional and very like mm-hmm. profound response to it, even if it's negative. Like that's that's fun. Mm-hmm. oh wow yeah this is great so far this is this is probably one of my favorite episodes <laughs> we're not even oh, did so a damn movie yet <laughs> <laughs> um vanna knee-jerk reaction to this film um well it definitely leaves like a feeling like having an empty pit in your stomach um but I am a sicko, and so <laughs> the first time I ever watched it, I was absolutely, like, in love, like, glee. I was having a blast. Um, I saw it pretty late in my, uh, like, horror film journey, so um, being able to, like, discover it was, uh, that's why there was so much delight. Like, I definitely was feeling what it was trying to make me feel, but when it ended, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God. Where has this been all my life? Why haven't I seen this yet? Um, so yeah, but I'm a psycho, obviously, why we have this <laughs> podcast. So <laughs> And it all comes down to me now. Um <laughs> like please nobody think I am an absolute psychopath, but I think this this pod has done things to my brain that cannot be repaired. <laughs> um I I enjoyed the hell out of this movie and like kind of 
laughed and cackled and had a good time. I'm like, oh no, like I'm seeing like Carly's reactions online and I'm like sinking down in my seat and I was like, oh no, this is kind of a blast. I kind of love this. Like, yeah, it's brutal, okay, but, like, but it's cheeky. Like, yeah, you know, they're, it's, it's, they're having fun with it. Uh, Michael Hannigan know what he's doing, you know? That's what I was going to say. There, there is like a certain, it's, it's irreverent. Like even it's agonizing and excruciating and terrorizing, but it also has, um, there is a playfulness to this film, um, which I think makes it more terrorizing at times. And Raina, you're not alone. Like when I was posting, I was watching this movie. I had so many people, respond and say like that it was like one of their favorite films like ever and I was like what like (laughs) okay like I think there is I think this movie is tapping into something that few other films do that like really sort of like resonates with a lot of a lot of movie watchers um and I think that's why so many people like this film I, I think it's operating on a frequency that few other films manage to for better or for worse okay okay sure. i see yeah and i go. accidentally gave away the you, director you name so should we just get into it <laughs> As, and speaking of having playful manner the film we're covering this week is funny games released in 1997 written and directed by michael I am so sorry. I'm going to butcher the fuck out of names right now. Directed by Michael Hank. Is that how we say it? Haneke, I think. is. I Yeah, I say Haneke. The... Okay. Haneke. Michael Haneke. Yeah. The film stars Suzanne Lothar, Ulrich Mew, Arno Frisch. I'm so sorry. Frank Gehring and Stefan Klebczynski. The film follows two violent young men as they take a mother, father, and son hostage in their vacation cabin and force them to play sadistic games with one another for their own amusement. Director Michael Haneke has said he never intended Funny Games to be a horror film. Instead, his idea was to make a film with a moralistic comment about the influence of media violence on society. The film received a frame-by-frame American remake also directed by Haneke in 2007. That version stars Naomi Watts and Michael Pitt. Okay, who wants to lead the conversation on funny games uh, first and foremost? Now that we got reactions out, I've got something. I you, think. you got something? Lead, lead us, Aaron. Um, like, well, 
anything anything to get the conversation rolling (laughs) all right well i might start a little bit heavy here i guess because i want to talk about the film at its metatextual level and michael haneke as like a filmmaker okay uh so haneke is somebody who is very interested in the way that like film and media I think informs society, reflects society, and also the way that audiences participate in it. Obviously, that's kind of what he's doing in Funny Games, where he is uh, constantly calling out and, and sort of you know doing these fourth wall breaks, uh, courtesy of of one of the uh, characters, Paul. And I think his in- intention, as he states it, is to kind of implicate the audience to kind of uh, show the audience or, or kind of tell them like, oh, see, you're, you're in on this and your, uh, your desire to kind of revel in and delight in the mayhem and the carnage is, uh, is the problem. Mm-hmm. But while I think that that is kind of an admirable thesis, I feel like he kind of confuses himself and, and is a bit confused in his, his, practice and and the manner with which he goes about it uh because every time this movie points out that it is fiction i find that it absolves me completely and i can actually enjoy it a little bit more because of it like those those parts where it is irreverent and cheeky to me sort of liberate me from feeling like i have any sort of complicity in what's happening on the screen Mm -hmm. what do you all think I think that's actually interesting. A very, yeah. yeah, I think that's actually a very interesting take. I do agree that Haneke gets a little, a little messy and muddled with the messaging, especially where he starts to equate uh, self defense with uh, just not like regular violence. Right? Yep, a hundred percent. And to me, that's kind of where the theming of the film like really falls apart. Um, I do like the observation that the fourth wall breaks are the liberating part. It's like it does remind you it's a work of fiction. Like these are actors, these are movies. It literally reminds you it's a movie at one point where near the end where he rewinds the film. Um, So it's like at that point, it's like, I know I'm viewing violence and I know I'm viewing carnage, but I also know it's fiction. So what you're trying to say about violence in the media and also trying to say that all violence is like equal violence, even in self-defense, which it's not. Um, I kind of just like take those themes and just kind of push them off to the side and just enjoy like, like you said, this like weird, irreverent, like s- style, like home invasion movie. At least that's what I take away with it. Yeah. And I think that the character Paul, who is the one that does the fourth wall breaking like he's the one that is you know winking at the camera that is asking us questions um he he serves sort of functionally as like a proxy for Haneke like a proxy for the director Mm -hmm. he's manipulating emotions and um and in control of the situation the same way that you know the director is but he too also doesn't have like a a completely um uncomplicated or um uncontradictory is that a word yeah 
Sure. Um, uncontradictory worldview. Um, there are times when, you know, he's saying like, he's like admonishing, um, the young boy, uh, for trying to kill him, um, while they are, you know, in the process of killing these people. So like he too is like, is, um, I think expressing a, a kind of, a messy perspective on uh, on violence and sort of like the the moral hierarchies we assign to it. Um, and I don't know that Haneke meant necessarily to like implicate himself in the character of Paul. But the more I hear about like what Haneke says about the film and how I feel like it actually shows up, particularly on this matter of self defense, I'm like, oh, you you're you're not that dissimilar from uh, from the character of Paul, um, in terms of the ways that, um, he contradicts himself. But I do think it's really interesting to have like a character like Paul who for all intents and purposes is like good looking, you know, obviously like charming and charismatic, um, and like a person we want to see on film be, the arbiter of like all of the most extreme and like sadistic um, elements of the film. Um, And then have someone like Peter, who he often refers to as fatty, um, be his sort of like hapless bumbling sidekick. Um, And like the ways that we automatically kind of assign hierarchies to them because of the way that they look (laughs) um at least I did I was like oh yeah like Paul's definitely the one who like is in control here and like he's he's the guy who you know runs the show um and that I think too is like not necessarily I don't I don't know that Haneke was intending that but the fact that I could wring that from what was happening on screen I think is one of the things about this film that makes it so so much better than like I want it to be um because there is so much you can get from what's happening um there it's a it is a rich text yeah interesting yeah I I definitely picked up this time um a little bit more about like the dynamics between the two um because yeah he like picks on him and so like he has there's this like dominant and more sub submissive like personalities but yeah i was i was definitely uh, on this time trying to like interrogate my um you know perspective on the two guys because of of like that kind of element where he's definitely like they're conventionally attractive and things like that or like the fact that his motives don't get brought up and every time they ask like why you're doing this he like deflects to like why like tubby is doing it and like comes up with all these like fake reasons so like he always deflects it away from himself and and things like that but yeah i like i i like the conversation about confusion because again kind of like you mentioned like the director's own um i guess perspective and things that he said maybe confuse my initial reactions or readings because like to me like confusion is the point like because Mm -hmm. I think like I think about like 
people like Craven. Like I just did my thesis on like Last House on the Left, basically. So thinking about like Craven talking about how much censorship film has to deal with when like real violence is happening and like we are more concerned with censoring film than we are with preventing violence like mm-hmm. in a in the news it, like in like true crime like being obsessed with true crime and taking yep. actual death as entertainment value so like i love the confusion and that like our villain is someone who confuses fiction with reality and so there are a lot of people like <laughs> i also just so happen to be like in a hole on tiktok last night and like a bunch of clips of interviews with tarantino were popping up where like he gets asked about the (laughs) violence in his films and he's like it's fantasy it's make movie like he has such a visceral reaction to people asking him those questions because he's like i'm a film director like i'm making things that are not real and so like i think paul's character is would be like these reporters who are trying to force an equation between film and actual violence and things like that um but also like the self-defense angle, I think find interesting because I think that narrative was pushed a lot like the last few years. Um, like when we think of protests and riots and we uh, certain avenues of the media um, make villains out of people who riot or destroy property uh, in defense of black lives um rather than interrogating why people are rioting and why people are protesting so i think i find that equation of of violence between um the inciting violence and self-defense to be like an interesting aspect of the film but again like i said i don't know if my reading of and my interpretation of that confusion and equation necessarily lines up with what michael haneke has actually said i don't know so it's kind of interesting like there's a lot going on but often when there is a lot going on it gets muddled or confused you know like there's it's hard to pinpoint what exactly he's thinking like is he against people like paul or is he paul is it both i don't know (laughs) um but i think that's what makes this film so interesting i don't know yeah, I agree. You're also making me think, Vanna, of um, a, a response that Spike Lee gave when he was being interviewed about his movie Summer of Sam, which is about um, a serial murderer um, in New York in the 70s um, that terrorized, was it Queens? I think so. Um, yeah, yeah. A, one of the boroughs um and you know he was called out on like a show about like the violence in in his film and he was like specifically for profiting from it by making a movie about it yes and he was like the times ran like full page cover stories about these murders for weeks and like profited off of the deaths of actual people like m- you know, in magnitudes, um, by comparison, like, why aren't, why aren't we talking about them? Right. Um, and I think the, the relationship between like media, meaning like film and like media 
meaning news and sort of like uh, publications where we're supposed to get like, uh, you know, um, reliable information, like the the relationship between those forms of media um, and violence and the profit motive is always a really interesting one to explore because like there is this over rotation of like the media that we consume as entertainment needing to be like morally pure without Mm -hmm. that same level of rigor um, and like expectation of moral purity applied to the media that we consume to inform like our perspective on reality, um, which is uh, something we talk about a lot um, on our show, especially as it relates to conversation right now around like sex scenes and like, Oh, like what should be in movies? And and it's like, well, Oh gosh. Yeah. The, yeah, we're not, we don't need to get into it, but the, but this like desire to have, to have the media that the, the art that we consume be sort of like, morally pure and clean is like as far as we go right that's like for us uh as a society broadly speaking like that's praxis if we can just like make a movie Mm -hmm. that's nice then like everything's fine right um and i don't have to worry about the fact that like you know the times is running like deeply violent transphobic um uh pieces on on a daily basis impacting the lives of people materially um, like that's not something that we have to that we have to do anything about. It also leans into the conversation of a depiction versus endorsement. I mean, yes, I know we talk a lot about that on this show in particular with us covering extreme films, but also it's just in the conversation as a whole around shows like The Idol. It's like this show or these movies are depicting these horrible things but they're not endorsing it at the same time. Like depiction does not equal endorsement. And I think that's where Haneke gets a little like even more muddled where it's like, I can watch Mm -hmm. the most Mm -hmm. violent fucking movie imaginable with like 17 decapitations, but that doesn't mean I'm going to endorse somebody actually going out and causing those decapitations. Like, come on. It's like, like, everybody for the most part or i like to think humans as a whole have like a baseline moral compass and it's more or less like the way we choose to consume art what we take away from it Mm -hmm. rather than saying oh all this violence in the media all this like depictions of violence and sexual acts are bad it's like no it's whatever you take away from it and run through lack of better turn the filter in your brain right yeah and i think like this is where i i find haneke's perspective frustrating and a little mm-hmm. bit taxing in, in terms of enjoying the movie I'll, I'll say this i think the movie actually transcends haneke's interpretation of his own work mm-hmm. i think it's a piece of art that actually takes on a life of its own and can be received and embraced and appreciated absent that mm-hmm. uh because i i just i think that he's fundamentally wrong <laughs> about his own movie uh i i think that he's someone who wholeheartedly does or at least at the time that he made this movie does believe that depiction is endorsement and has gone on record as saying so saying that you know that there is a forced subjectivity 
when you're watching a movie where you are complicit in or a participant in the violence that you're seeing. And I don't think that's true, right? I think that artists like deliberately uh, skew perspective and and abstract things or or target specific avenues and, and ways of thinking and, and certain vantage points when it comes to violence, when it comes to sex, when it comes to anything that uh, make us consider it, you know, and and I think that that is a, a wholly subjective thing uh, a lot of the time, like whether or not we participate in it, whether we endorse a certain side or not. And a lot of it has to do with what we've been socialized to believe and and what we what we choose to take from it. It's why we can find so much interesting things to mine out of a lot of more conservative or reactionary art sometimes and why those things aren't completely and like wholesale worthless, I think. Uh, and yeah, I just, I, I think that he doesn't necessarily get that. I, you know, I think that he's one of those guys who seems to be of the mindset that uh, depiction is endorsement, you know, that video games do corrupt, that, that watching violence will inherently make you violent or make you a participant in, in some way and a slave to that kind of violence. Well, and the thing I hate about the depiction is endorsement perspective is that it's like a very Margaret Thatcher fucking thing to say. <laughs> like <laughs> you're, you're basically saying like, Oh, like no society exists, right. To inform someone's behavior, perspectives, actions, ideas about the world right like it's just the shit they consume that does it it's just it's just the the uh the artifacts of our society not the structures of society itself that inform um what someone takes away or how they interpret something and so like for me that is fundamentally a perspective that is not only like you know anti-materialist but also just like refuses to acknowledge that we live in a society that impacts um how how we engage with not just media but with other human beings like i i think that um the the sort of like increasing immiseration of of our population is bringing about a posture towards media that is incredibly puritanical because people don't know what else to do. Like particularly Americans are, you know, completely feckless mm -hmm. when it comes to um, fighting against the structures of power that are making our lives miserable. And so like, what do we have control over? Oh, well like the shit that I buy and the shit that I watch, if I can make that nice, then like I'm doing something, but it is obfuscating the fact that there are structures of power that influence our perspectives and our relationship with other human beings. And um, so I, I, you know, I think the more we sort of talk about funny games in, in relationship to Haneke's um, own perspective on the film, I agree that like the film is is actually um, doing more than what I think he intended. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly a deflection, like to put responsibility on a consumer, um, rather yeah. like rather than interrogating, like maybe we should reform the public education system, or right. maybe we should stop like meddling <laughs> in other people's wars so that we can like take their resource you know like like we um like again like not to keep dropping like 
Craven or Last House on the Left, but like the whole point of that chapter of my thesis was that like uh, people were reacting to the Vietnam War. They weren't reacting right. to a film that one dude made. Like, <laughs> and if anything, that in that film that that one dude made is a product of that war that everyone had to watch and and things like that. It's like so rather than interrogating like you know the the powers that be, we're gonna tell people that they shouldn't spend a couple bucks on a certain thing (laughs) like it's such a big deflection and it's a way to totally reroute the issue so that you know people who are actually responsible don't have to take the consequences right it's it's interesting that haneke fucking doubles down on all this idea by doing an american remake frame by frame of this whole movie (laughs) like 10 years later I've you, heard there's you differences. Said that, you Is said that? you watched that, right, Raina? I have, I have, but I saw it in theaters in 2007, and I haven't watched it since. Um, this is the one I always go back to, so I haven't seen that one in a very long time. That's something that I find really interesting because um, I've had like people tell me that they uh, often prefer the remake because, as mm-hmm. Americans, they find the message of the film to be much better situated in an American context. Cause I think also a lot of our perspective on this whole conversation or era about even the, the types of films that talk about this is deeply American. Um, so I don't know anything about nineties Germany and maybe there could have been things going on in their media and their government or like things regarding censorship and things like that that might not be something that i totally understand but it wasn't it was mostly just like mad cow disease going on (laughs) take it from somebody that lived over there (laughs) yeah i just i just mean i think uh you know this whole conversation is something that is pretty american when it comes down to it um well, which is so it's it's hard to apply to a German film sometimes. Like I, I mean the the message, like we said, transcends like what he thinks he was doing. But I sometimes I like to interrogate my understanding of of a film that doesn't come from my culture specifically. Like, or I think some of the th- actions specifically that maybe some of the. Uh, family members take like sometimes i think about like etiquette and uh things like that like i think that came up a lot in like speak no evil what uh from last year like i think a lot of the reactions that people have to some of the happenings of a film specifically have to do with um cultural expectations of like norms and politeness mm-hmm. and and things mm-hmm. like that so i think that's another like layer that maybe it's hard to understand like there are times in this film where i was like i would never do that but i also like have a very different understanding of of etiquette and things like that when it comes to some of the dynamics between the characters and things like that for sure and i i will say you know that like I have many friends who have have told me similar things about the 2007 remake that it's it's one that they prefer and I've actually been told that there are that it is not a shot for shot frame by frame that there are a handful of like very minor but uh very intentional changes and alterations within the film itself that make it uh, a stronger 
sort of like message as it pertains to this kind of theme and, and thesis that Haneke is exploring. So I don't know. I, I look mm. forward to watching it. I probably will after watching this one again, just because I, I am curious about it. I love Naomi Watts and Tim Roth and, and I like Michael Pitt too. So worthwhile, I suppose. But, you know, for, for this one in the time period that it came out, like, I will say that it does kind of anticipate uh, a movement of like extremity horror that does come afterward. Right. Like, uh, and, and not just American, mm-hmm. not just like hostile and like the saw franchise and things like that, but you've got like an entire like cottage industry of, of French extremity too, like martyrs and inside mm-hmm. um, high tension, things like that, that'll come out in like six or seven years from, from this. Uh, so, so I think there is something there that he's like interested in, in kind of plumbing the depths of the thing is that I, I think he just kind of, fundamentally misunderstands what drives people to engage with those kinds of films like I, th- I think that he doesn't understand the catharsis that people can sometimes draw from that and and often what those kinds of films uh yield for for viewers i think he's just sort of abstractly looking at all violence as kind of being synonymous and that uh that for whatever reason is something worthy of reprimand you know i'm reminded of a um a piece that a dear friend of ours, uh, Lindsay Lee Wallace, wrote for um, Blood Knife um, that is about why women specifically watch horror. And she talks a lot about the um, the sort of the catharsis, but also the, um, the kind of like uh, breaking of societal rules um, that happens when you get to kind of like revel in um in something that is maybe forbidden or um or uh not like polite right um to put it lightly and so I do think that there is like there is a a kind of like I don't know I think there's a generalizing being done on Haneke's part um, for like why audiences might want to engage um, with violent films or horrific films and not necessarily thinking through like why women in particular might want to versus like why men or children or whatever. Um, and then the other thing that I'll say is that like we also haven't talked about the fact that like there isn't a ton of violence on screen right. in this film right like yeah indeed that i think is it also sort of complicates things because there was part of me that's like oh he's doing this intentionally because he wants to call out the fact that we're like craving it but like i actually found that like more violent (laughs) like Mm -hmm. i found it more terrorizing than seeing a lot of the violence on screen oh my god where you see where you hear the shotgun blast and then it like while he's in the kitchen making a sandwich and then it goes back to the living room and their child is literally laying dead on the floor is like you just see blood dripping down the tv screen like that was fucking horrible yeah. yeah and it's even more horrible when you realize who it happened to you're like oh my god right um I, yeah. wanted, I, I think want... a lot of the most disturbing things I've ever watched are the things that don't give it to you, but don't give mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. those those moments because it because it leaves like that empty, empty feeling or it leaves you to fill in blanks. And, and often 
that ends up being worse than if it was just shown to you. So right. yeah, it's yeah, it's really interesting because most of the most disturbing things that I've ever um, had people tell me, like when I ask them what the most disturbing thing they've ever seen is, it's often the not um, extremely gory or bloody movies. It's it's things like funny games. Right. I, I wanted to swing back around to the point that like people engaging with like extreme horror as a form of catharsis because you know right after this was the rise of torture porn and more extreme horror french extremity and me and vanna kind of talked about that in length in our first episode on saw how that kind of came after the wave of like columbine happening and 9 11 mm -hmm. happening people witnessing these horrific horrific acts like on their mm -hmm. television in everyday life and we were just kind of fed it and kind of told like accept it this is the world you live in and the way audience shifted to the more extreme side of cinema and gave rise to that i think is utterly fascinating on like just even a conceptual level and i i think this movie like yeah whether hannigy was intentional or not was a little bit ahead of its time in addressing a lot yeah. of that I completely agree. The more we talk about it, the more that becomes clear to me. Yeah. And I think they like kind of play in the same space, you know, like Haneke is someone who I think has this kind of like weird, like what I would call like an ascetic perspective of, about cinema. Like he has gone on record as saying that like his idea of like the sort of like platonic ideal of like a great cinematic scene is one that someone can't watch. Uh, and, and said as much about this movie mm -hmm. too, that like if people walked out of it, like that was actually technically the appropriate response. Like the people who walked out of the movie are the people who don't need the movie, but the people who do need the movie are the people who stay to the end. And I think that it's, again, it kind of paternalizing to a certain extent. And I think it also, removes a lot of the power of the director like it's some sort of like weird like right. inverse of like the auteur theory but the movie itself actually does help to kind of define that level of artifice and like that he is firmly in control at every moment of of the proceedings the same way we sort of buy into that and and have sort of a, a presumption of distance and safety as an audience when we go into a saw movie and know like we're not going to wind up in a reverse bear trap you know like that's that's not something that's going to happen to us but we can watch it and embrace it because it's it's repellent and you know it's happening to other people there's a remove haneke is doing the same thing in this movie i think without realizing or acknowledging it which is like oh i'm gonna set up the template of like kind of a, a cut and dry more sort of formulaic home invasion thriller and then i'm going to subvert it in interesting ways and show you that i'm able to manipulate this any way that i want to of course he gives himself the proxy of, of paul but paul's not real <laughs> like haneke's real he he made the movie right yeah some of the fourth wall breaks are like directly addressing the control he has like with the remote or like when he at the end says like why do, like let them go or whatever and he's like let them off that easy we haven't hit a feature length film length yet or whatever so right like yeah. the fourth wall breaks are directly referencing his control that he has over <laughs> everything in the film but yeah really interesting i i really like this film 
specifically because like I think about like if the why are you doing this was a like subgenre because um like <laughs> it's like he's subverting home invasion but then I, I think about like when I heard the like why are you doing this and the first response is why not and then later he comes up with all these weird excuses and then says like none of that was real like I think about like because I love films like I mentioned speak no evil and also like strangers and I think about like mm-hmm. there's an answer of why not in this film and then like the later home invasion or uh other films that like maybe play on what funny games is doing like in strangers that it's the like you know because you were home thing and then in speak no evil it's like because you let me and i think that's just a really interesting like development of like the understanding of this film almost template that he created or like this like home invasion slash i don't know like weird family stuff i don't know it's really interesting but um but yeah i don't know yeah there's a weird play between like the control he has versus saying that he's giving like the audience control it's again another point of confusion on his part it's it's a push and pull like here here here's some rope but i'm gonna yank it right back and then the audience yanks it back going like no you're not gonna do this (laughs) um (laughs) i it's this movie's just so damn fascinating because I remember watching it as a teenager and just thinking like, oh, sweet. It's like just a gnarly home invasion movie. Like I was a dumb shithead. I didn't walk away with any of the like (laughs) bigger themes. I was just like, hell yeah, violence. I was like, are we seeing are we seeing Saw 4 this weekend? Who's got the DVD of Irreversible going like and then now critically going back and looking at all of this and it's just like it feels like someone is literally opening up my brain and like prodding at it and mm-hmm. getting gears turning in my head, like saying that these movies say a lot more about us as humans, society, the world as we really know it more than they give off a lot of the time. There's a moment in the film when Paul is talking about, um, it is one of the like, why are you doing this moments? And uh, and he says, you know, don't forget the entertainment value. Like we're all deprived of pleasure. And I think Haneke is meant to sort of like he's he's using that line as an indictment of the audience. Um, mm-hmm. But what I don't think he realizes is that like he's he is deprived depriving us of pleasure ostensibly in this film right like Mm -hmm. he isn't he's saying like oh you're here because you want you want to see the violence Mm -hmm. um and like i'm i'm going to you know manipulate the circumstances so that you know you see it when i want you to see it you don't when when i don't want you to see it but like i also think he's not understanding that that in and of itself is like a kind of sadism (laughs) like Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. that um i think he wants really to call out like that we're you know we have this sort of like prurient relationship with uh with violence that we're sort of like salaciously eating it up um but there is also as you said vanna like a lot of violence in the withholding that he's doing Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that's where I think his indictment kind of falls apart. Yeah, yeah. I Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where almost uh like I can a director where you recognize the craftsmanship, but where you go, okay, yeah, what it's I have it now, so we'll we'll take this. <laughs> well, <laughs> right, right. You can, you can stay back. We'll it. take this from here. <laughs> your point your point is is well taken, right? Uh yeah. Raina, because you saw this one uh I think you said when when you were a teenager, you know, earlier in in your life as well. Do you remember this movie being kind of marketed to like the hostile and Saul crowd? Because that's what I remember. I my distinct recollection of it was like people at the time kind of pitching it as, oh, it's just as disturbing as Hostel, but you don't see any of the violence on screen. Yeah, I I do remember it was being kind of marketed as like torture porn, extreme. I remember the 2007 got version got announced and they're like oh it's a remake of like a european like extreme film and me and my friends hunted down like a dvd of it and and watched it and it was kind of it was that thing where like and that wasn't that violent and like yeah oh that was a bit disappointing maybe the new american one will be even more violent and but i do remember it kind of being marketed like that and it was it, it's strange because looking back on it now, it totally does not fit into any of those categories, I don't think. No, I totally agree with you. And I, I'm right there with you. When I saw it, I was like, I, I can't even really imagine what 17-year-old me thought now because I don't really remember of that like eight-minute-long uninterrupted like take after uh, Peter and Paul leave. And it's just... Mm -hmm. Anna and Georg like sitting in like the blood strewn wreckage of their home yeah. trying to trying to walk trying to walk oh and God, get themselves upright and unbound it's excruciating it's brutal but it again it's it's not what you're there for if you're looking for something like oh I'm here to see like blood and guts and things get cut off and I, I want to be disturbed it's it's just disturbing on a much more like I don't know, guttural, like Spiritual human level. level. Well, yeah, of watching people like suffer after yeah. the fact. And the, 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 I, I was, I was really taken by the kind of interweaving of all of these kind of banal, banal and benign totems of domesticity, like being like injected mm -hmm. into like, the landscape of terror that was taking place in this mm -hmm. home. Like, and I was really feeling that after the two of them left, ironically, mm -hmm. um, that like they were just in this house afterwards where like they were, you know, going upstairs and like getting a hairdryer, probably like they did like a million different times before that, or like in the kitchen, like eating bread, probably like they have like a million different times before that. And that, and that like, the 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 banal the banality of those moments and of those like artifacts of their of their domestic life is like what made the terror of what happened to them like that much more heightened um and i found that to be an incredibly effective mechanism for the film yeah i think uh, a lot of the analysis of the home invasion subgenre itself centers itself around um the invasion of domestic space like that's your sacred space like this is where if they don't sell their vacation home that they will 
spend the rest of their lives vacationing in like you know like that's one of those things you think of like uh like this is a home like they're a home. safe space yeah, their vacation their safe their respite their entire right. um it, that was all violated and yeah i think i think a lot about the couple like i thought about them a lot more this time like the the actual like Anna and George Sr. Like I mm-hmm. never really paid attention to their dynamics so much. Um, obviously, because there's just like so much going on in this movie, like we've discussed. But I thought about like towards the end, um, like their embrace, like when mm-hmm. they're crying and like about trying to go get help. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is so like, I'm getting emotional at a part I never thought I would get emotional at rewatching this film. But then I also thought more about the beginning when she's trying to get George to tell them to leave before anything ever happens. And right. my like knee jerk response this time was like, maybe just believe her when she says she's uncomfortable. You don't need to interrogate why before getting the threat that she has identified out of the house. Like that I was a literally a, an aspect I never thought of before. Like just believe her and maybe we can talk about why later, but like get the threat that she's telling you exists out. Like just believe women sometimes, maybe. I don't know. I was just gonna say, like <laughs> well, this this movie wouldn't happen if we just believed women. No, but like I yeah. verbatim shouted the exact same thing at the screen. I was like, maybe just like fucking believe her, like, and talk yes. about it later. Like, fuck off. <laughs> oh my. Yes. Um, I'm like looking at the time, and uh, do we have any final moments on like comments on funny games as a whole before we shift into our next topic? Okay, because I feel like we could be here for three hours if need be talking about yeah. this. Film. <laughs> <clears throat> oh yeah i yeah we could talk forever but i think yeah it's a good time to you know maybe segue to the music yeah yeah um so vanna do you want to introduce what album we're talking about this week yeah so this week we are pairing funny games with the album sunbather by deaf heaven so according to last fm deaf heaven is an american post black metal band formed in 2010 um, they were originally based in San Francisco, and the group began as a two-piece with singer George Clark and guitarist uh, Carrie McCoy, who recorded and self-released a demo album together. And then following the release, Def Heaven recruited three new members and began to tour. Um, their second album is Sunbather, which was released in 2013 uh, to wide critical acclaim, becoming one of the best reviewed albums of the year in the United States. And it currently sits at a 92 on Metacritic. Um, and at the point that we are recording, tomorrow is the 10 year anniversary, apparently. So that's uh, interesting how that aligned for us. <laughs> um but the uh, the actual like music, the, the melancholic songs featured in the album include wall of sound arrangements that are found in many shoegazing and post-rock acts, producing dense sounds that sometimes break down into slower melodic parts that are then topped with vocalist George Clark's reverb-soaked screaming-style lyrics. So um, who chose this um, album this week? Uh, that would be me. Obviously, it was me. hundred <laughs> percent, it was me. No, Carly. No. <laughs> uh, Car- Carly uh, vetoed her uh, 
I guess, designation as the the picker of the album. I was like, this is, you got this. <laughs> yeah. And, and interested me with it. So when I was uh, talking with Reina in the, the DMs about it, I kind of thought, and granted, this is before I had, I had seen Funny Games again for, you know, a little while. But part of, I think, the draw of Funny Games for me is that, you know, it does withhold a lot of its extremity and that it it is formally something that is very much indebted to kind of like European art house. Like it, it is well composed. It is very patient. Mm. Uh, if you watch funny games on, on mute, uh, it would not be all that disturbing, you know, say for maybe a couple of instances of, of blood, but like it, it would not have the same sort of terror uh, that it does when, when you're listening to it and, and, you know, engaging with, with what's being said and implied. So I wanted to pick an album that uh, does something kind of similar in that it kind of, you know, it, it imbues a sort of more classic, beautiful, like artistic classicism with something more extreme, more brutal. Uh, and so I, I went here. This was one of the first things I thought of. Deaf Heaven's one of my, my favorite metal bands. Um, and yeah, it is it is perfect that it's lining up with the with the 10 year anniversary. So who yeah, this he, was a blind spot for me. Yeah, I, I was gonna say who's the first timer. <laughs> yeah, first timer. Two, here, I think we have so. two first timers on. I think Vanna should go. It's her show. <laughs> <laughs> um it was it's interesting being like a first timer with this and that this was a blind spot, um, being that I do listen to this kind of music. Um so even though like being someone who's into metal and like um or different metal core like branches like i didn't know what to expect and i was actually like a little taken aback um at first i was like oh this is like pretty mellow like okay like but then just like you kind of said and how that relates to funny games like i listened to the entire album like front to back um earlier today for the first time and just like let it take me on that like journey and there were moments where i was feeling anxious like because it is withholding in a way and then there are moments where it like leaves you with like that pit of sadness in your stomach and like the whole time I was like wow this is really like what the emotional journey of funny games kind of felt like that um so I thought that was just really interesting but I absolutely loved it um I just this week made a sad metal playlist um, because I've been <laughs> feeling a little emo lately. So uh, yeah. it's instantly making its way onto that playlist that I just made. <laughs> uh, I can say some stuff. Say some stuff about <laughs> um, Sunbather, Carly. Yes, first yeah, timers so first. <laughs> first. First timer for uh, Deaf Heaven, although I've like been proximate to Aaron when he's been listening to them so like you know I've I've heard their music before but haven't necessarily like listened to it with intent um and I like I am not a metal person I'm not um I'm not like naturally drawn to it I find a lot of metal to be really impenetrable um and I tend to be drawn towards a lot of like soul, funk, R&B, like uh, stuff that's more sort of like vocal led um, and has 
um, feel sort of like uh, more, what's the word? Um, I don't know, organic, um, just something that feels like squishier to me. Um, <laughs> and, and I have a hard time listening to metal. Um, and there's like hearing loss in my family. So like, I also like have like a, a an interesting relationship with like music that's really noisy um just like my my personal physiology and so uh when we were listening to this I was like okay this is different um it's not what I was expecting and Aaron had sort of primed me to say like that these guys were doing something different um, in like the black metal space and doing more of this like shoegazy um, sound, which like I could definitely hear. And I was listening to the album and, you know, sort of like taking it in, um, but not necessarily like thinking like, Oh fuck, like this is incredible. And then we got to the last track, the pecan tree. And I just started bawling. Like, (laughs) like literally started sobbing um and i said uh i said this on twitter but i'll say it here the the song felt like grief to me it felt like grieving um there are like movements in that there's an initial sort of build at the opening of the song and it's incredibly primal and there's wailing and it feels almost like um like a, a child screaming or crying, which is very much the experience of grief and something I've been thinking and feeling a lot lately. My dad died in December. Um, and this song like brought something out, um, for me. And, and I think that like, not only is something I wasn't expecting, but I think it's also a testament to, what this album is doing in terms of like bringing people in to a genre that um that might otherwise be sort of off-putting for them and I'm speaking of myself but I'm also speaking of the fact that you know in talking more about this album Aaron and I like we were talking about how um this expanded like a listenership for metal because it it was more accessible in certain ways. And there is something really emotive about this album. Um, and I think the, the movements in pecan tree um, felt, you know, if I'm saying R and B and funk and all of those, uh, all of those genres feel more organic. Like there's something very organic feeling about, particularly about that last track. Um, that felt like it was connecting with uh, a sort of spiritual, emotional core in me. And I would have never in a million years um, to- like thought that I would that I would be crying to a, like a black gaze, black metal uh, <laughs> track. Like it, it really took me by surprise. Um, not unlike funny games. Uh, I certainly wasn't crying watching funny games, but I did have a very visceral response despite myself. hundred percent. Deaf heaven is one of those bands that I, I would say that they changed the entire game when it came to black metal. Like you think black metal, you think all the stereotypical stuff like, Oh, like 
metalheads painting their faces. They're wearing like bracelets with like a million spikes. Like <laughs> right. the music is just so like inaccessible, like you said. And Sunbather was really where they kind of came into their own sound. And uh, I remember them blowing up. I remember seeing them at one point uh, play at a bar by the San Diego airport that didn't even have a state, have a stage. It had a drum riser and that was it. Oh my God. And then the next time I saw them, it was like at Coachella of all places. (laughs) Um, Oh my God. So it really was the thing where like they were bringing in new crowds into like this, like black metal scene that was so like inaccessible and their music to me is so accessible more so than other bands because of the emotion that they elicit the emotion they have in their tracks the grooves are like actually like like i love metal but i understand that that people can can't get enjoyment out of it but deaf heaven have melodies in a way that are are very soothing to the brain and to the ears um unlike a lot of other bands I I can't believe this fucking album is ten years old. That that is I know it's blowing my mind. That is, that is <laughs> blowing my mind because that just means I'm getting old. <laughs> but I it, to hear Carly yours and Vanna's takes on this album and to hear that you both like actually really liked it is is just speaking straight to my heart and I I love it so because I it. it Metal is a genre that I feel is legit compared to other musical genres. I feel that kind of a lot of the times metal doesn't get its due. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it's one of those things where it's like, fuck, I wish like people would just like give this music a chance. And Sunbather was like that album to me that represents like everything great about the black metal genre. And like, here you go. Here's your first step into it. Now run off and go free into like any direction you want with it. Yeah. And I like that what this album did for me um, is like demonstrate for me the what's possible with this type of music, yep. which like prior to that, I was kind of like, oh, like black metal and like hardcore like that's that's a certain type of limiting that that music um and there aren't places that that music can go uh because of the the scriptures of the genre and this album just kind of like blew all of that up and was like no you can't have melody you can have like um these sort of like lilting qualities uh to a track like which i would that's not an adjective i would use to describe black metal if i was just you know thinking of describing it off the top of my head and and also like the way that some of the tracks feel at once like incredibly expansive and also like deeply deeply intimate and personal um like i don't know how they managed to do that with sound but they did it and um it's really really beautiful and again really really changed my perspective on like what what metal could actually do sonically and like emotionally i also like to really point out that deaf heaven is also one of the greatest live bands i think i've ever seen um 
Aaron, do you have any stories of seeing Death Heaven live? I do indeed. Uh, so yeah, hard to believe now that I've been a Death Heaven fan for like 12, going on 13 years now. God. Um, but I came to metal like a little bit later than some people. I Musically, I, I think I kind of had like my big awakening as a teenager, but was very much in like the like the emo space, which eventually kind of mm-hmm. refined itself into like very white guy, like plaid shirt, indie rock kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you had the swoopy hair. I, I definitely had the swoopy hair. <laughs> I had girl jeans. I had a stud belt, all that kind of stuff when I was in high school. Um, but yeah, I, I was into, you know, like kind of like emo and like emo core stuff and, and occasionally stuff that was proximate to that, like in the hardcore space, you know, um, and, and emo core space. But uh hadn't really explored too much uh in, in terms of like metal proper and like uh anything that was like bona fide metal uh until like college so probably like late 2000s early 2010s uh and so i was like perfectly primed to receive their first album roads to judah uh and saw Def heaven play in 2012 in Austin during uh, South by Southwest. So it was right between that album and before they, they really blew up with Sunbather. Uh, and at the time, they were road testing a lot of the stuff that would become the things on that album, but no one had heard it uh, in any sort of recorded capacity. And let me tell you what, it, uh, it, it tore the roof off. It was really, really cool. Um, George Clark as a front man has been, is like really fascinating. Um, I, I think that they have been seen for a little while, especially since Sunbather kind of is like interlopers in the metal space a little bit, namely because they're not like classically metal. Their aesthetic isn't very metal. And also because George Clark kind of looks like a J crew model a little bit, like he's kind of like traditionally <laughs> handsome and has like yeah. short hair and, and, you know, like dresses well. Uh, but when he's on stage, uh, and he's maybe like tamed this a little bit as they like refine their sound, but that first show I saw in 2012, when he wasn't screaming, he had the most intense, evil, like demonic, like penetrating stare he could possibly make. Like he would not blink. His eyebrows were downturned and he was like gritting his teeth and he would put his face directly in your face, like off the stage. And it was very unnerving. Like people would like move from the front row because he was like getting in their face and being very aggressive and confrontational. Uh, but it was awesome. I mean, as like a metal experience, it's like, this is, this is kind of what you want. You want something sort of like comfortably hostile a little bit, you know, and, and something that kind of like, uh, confronts and, and offers that catharsis. So, uh, yeah, that was awesome. I saw them shortly after new Bermuda again here in San Francisco at a like pretty moderately sized venue. Um, he pulled me up on stage. Uh, George did in that one and threw me off the crowd. Sir. Oh my God. He, he saw me in the, he saw me in the pit the entire time and was like, Hey, thanks for being here. This has been really awesome. I'm like, why are you thanking me? You're the one who's playing the fucking show. And then he threw, and then he threw me into the, the crowd. So that was, that was a, a fun little reward. Oh my God. I love that. Yeah. But, uh, awesome. Awesome. Live band. Hell yeah. I, I saw them a little bit before new Bermuda. And I was I was so stoked because it was that airport bars show and it was uh, they had the album on vinyl before it's like street date. So I oh, hell yeah, I bought it like right away. I was like, I don't care how much it is. I'll buy it. And uh, that show 
agreed was like super intimate george is like kind of scary he was in like his like leather driver gloves phase like he would just put on leather gloves (laughs) like he was like almost like a serial killer (laughs) and uh they commanded that room like no other and i went i think approximately like three weeks later to coachella and saw them and it's still like you think Coachella, they're playing on like a way bigger stage. It's like a totally different environment, a music festival. And it's like the show was just as crazy and intense. And it was wild to see like all different walks of life, like watching this band and the new mm-hmm. people they were drawing in who were waiting for other acts and just seeing their reception as a whole be received so well. It was like, holy shit, these guys are like, there's something different in the metal scene. Cause like you said, Aaron, like they were like interlopers, like real metal heads were like crossing their arms going like, that's not metal. Like, like get out of here with that. And <laughs> it was, it was really, it felt like a paradigm shift in, in the genre. And uh, from what I understand, they're a lot lighter now. They're not, they're not as metal-y. Um, I need to, I need to listen to their new album to verify that. But um that era in my mind will always remain golden for sure. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I kind of hope that they've exercised like their like shoegaziness a little bit at this point. It, it's their evolution was interesting. Cause obviously like, I, I think Dreamhouse is a, a pretty perfect blend of all of their different kind of like aesthetic interests mm-hmm. in one cohesive statement. New Bermuda like refines that down, like cuts like 15 minutes off the runtime and is just like, we're going to do the songs. We're going to do them straight. You're going to get like the, the, you know, like black tar version of, of deaf heaven. The next album does the opposite and kind of elongates it. And then, uh, infinite granite. The, the most recent one is just like a straight proper shoegaze record where George like sings and a couple of screaming moments on it. I hope that they're kind of done with that period. I would like for them to get back into stuff. That's a little bit more aggressive, but, uh, we will see. We'll find out always an interesting band always an interesting band and uh before we get out of here um aaron carly first and foremost thank you for joining us today oh my gosh thank you so much for having us this was such an awesome conversation so much fun i'm yeah forever grateful you guys said yes to this and uh do you guys have anything you'd like to like throw out there pitch where can people find you on socials etc yeah, absolutely. This uh, we do have rehearsed. We right now. we do have this <laughs> rehearsed very much so. So uh, again, we are Hit Factory Podcast, a podcast about the films of the 1990s. You can follow along with the show at Hit Factory Pod. That's on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Hit Factory Pod, uh, where we do biweekly bonus content, uh, bonus episodes, interviews, uh, other fun little series, things like that for our subscribers. And we have a Discord. Uh, we have a Discord uh, that we would be happy to let you all join uh, as subscribers if you feel like doing that. And and maybe we'll invite you to Rain and Vanna just because we like bringing our friends of the show in there. Yes. <laughs> Definitely go check them out. Wonderful show. Big fan. Um, Vanna, you got anything you're working on? And where can people can find you online? Um... Nope, nothing, nothing in the works at the moment. Just focusing on 
you know, working on these Carnal Extremities podcast episodes. Um, but you can find me on Instagram at the Horror Helion or Twitter, TikTok, all that at Horror Helion. Um, and that's about it for now. As for me, you can find me at JFC Doomblade on literally everything. Now I finally got Blue Sky <laughs> and. Hey. Secured that oh my handle. Gosh. <laughs> I'm gonna follow you there. I am also there. You know I'm not yet, but give give it a moment. I'll be there. W- one of us will give you the invite code. And yeah. Carly, yeah. I think you already do follow me. <laughs> Great. I knew what I was doing right <laughs> you now. You did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, JFC Doomblade on everything. Uh, you can find my games writing at Bloody Disgusting. I've been dropping reviews left and right, and let me tell you, I'm exhausted, but I love it. Uh, you could also find regular horror writing from me at Fangoria and The Rap. And you could find the Carnal Extremities podcast on Twitter at Carnal EX Pod. We are also available on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Please leave us a five star review. It lets us our lets our visibility go higher to reach a bigger audience. You know, we love that. We want that. Um, as for the pipeline, Vanna, I think we got episodes on martyrs and perfect blue next um yeah very excited for those god (laughs) i will tell you guys off recording who we have for that one but we are definitely covering that with someone you guys like oh my god okay i cannot wait (laughs) um and uh, yeah that's it that's um that's yeah martyrs and perfect blue is what you guys have to look forward to don't know what the music is but i guess we'll find out when we get there as always thank you for listening and we will see you next week